When a man will take the stage, make himself comfortable at the podium, and endeavor to give a public speech that will inspire the congregation in synagogue on Shabbos, and he should open his mouth and begin the talk with an innocent, it says in this week's Parsha, or perhaps even more damning to the talk would be, it says in last week's Parsha, these phrases act like five milligrams of melatonin on the audience. It makes them uninterested. The opening seems bland. And I'll have to whim them back with inspiring them as the talk goes, which is easier said than done. But if that same speaker should begin with, now there was a great man and he walked into that holy shoal in 1908 and you're not going to believe what he saw. Well, then he may have a better shot in delivering his message. Why? What's the difference? Because he began with a story. Stories make great public speeches openers because they're relatable. They're magically captivating. Stories are gripping. I still haven't exactly figured out why it is that we all love stories so much. But we all know that you can lose yourself inside of a well-told, very graphic story. And storytellers are also tasked with giving over a story that creates tension in the audience as the rising action, the opening of the story should make the audience want to hear more and following the classic story arc that every book, TV show, movie, any great story pretty much ever follows, that there's the opening and you're supposed to build anxiety and uncertainty and there's good versus evil and there's the tzaddik, there's a Russia. It seems like good is going to lose. There's no way that our hero is going to be able to overcome. And as you take the audience through different twists and turns, unforeseen circumstances that all make the audience doubt the chance of the hero proving triumphant, when all hope seems to be lost, the tension is at its peak. You then hit the climax, a dramatic turning point, something surprising that the audience didn't see coming, where the hero does something different, unforeseen, and the audience is calmed. The tension is replaced by a feeling of satisfaction because at this great confrontation of the antagonist and the protagonist, good versus evil, good won, 
And now there's peace. The issue has been solved. There is closure and there is victory. And perhaps this all-followed practice of telling stories, pretty standard, was all taken and borrowed from the greatest story ever told by the most supreme storyteller, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Scripture, Tanakh, is the greatest story ever told. We pick up our story here really as it's about to hit its climax. All of Avraham Avinu's work seems to be about lost as the Jewish people are stuck in the belly of Egypt. The enslavement is torturous. There is no hero in sight. It's a shame, really, that we know the end of the story. Because just imagine if we didn't know of a Parshas bow, if we were reading the story like kindergarteners for the very first time, thinking, what's going to be? Are the Jewish people going to make it out alive? I don't see how. And the Torah, it opens us up to the hero, the chosen one, Moshe Rabbeinu. With the great happening and the vision of HaKadosh Baruch Hu revealing himself in the burning bush. So now there's a little ember of hope. But now Moshe Rabbeinu seems to doubt himself. More uncertainty, more ambiguity. Moshe doesn't feel right for the job. The hero seems to be not very confident in his mission. HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants him to go, but the hero says, no one's going to listen to me. Moshe Rabbeinu complains of a stutter. He's the stammerer. There's no hope. Why will Pyro listen to me? And indeed, the very first time that the hero attempts to overcome evil and win the day, he just made things worse. Pyro's response to the first marching into his castle by Moshe Rabbeinu was, let's keep the same quota of bricks, but let's increase the torture, let's increase the arduous, back-breaking, cumbersome labor on the Jewish people so that when Moshe Rabbeinu leaves Pyro's palace, you can imagine that the already present feeling of uncertainty, of not feeling ready for the job, only got worse when he saw 600,000 innocent Hebrews being worked that much harder because of him. Perhaps they were throwing tomatoes. You're not making anything better. You're just making it worse. You sure you saw a burning bush? Are you sure you're supposed to be coming in here? One can't help but think that this may very well be the end of the Jewish people. What hope is there? But then, the pieces seem to come together. And Parshas Va'era at the end of the first Aliyah, Hashem takes a different approach towards Moshe. It's no longer, please Moshe, go and rescue the people. It's Vayidaber Hashem El Moshe Lemor. 
with a very harsh way of speaking. I'm no longer requesting, but I'm telling. Tzavim, a commandment. Go with Aaron and free the Jewish people. Enough is enough. And this is about to be that climax. The story arc is about to hit their crescendo. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is about to make an example of the Egyptians. And you can kind of feel how all of the tension will be relieved as the roller coaster is to the very top of the story arc. And you remember that Moshe Rabbeinu, in fact, grew up in the house of Pyro. So ironic, so iconic. Here we go. But the very next Pasuk is hardly anything dramatic or exciting. It is a genealogical table. An oddly placed, seems to be unseemly, un, or poorly timed commercial break about the pedigree and background of Moshe's family. And to begin it all, it's really Ruvain, the 12 tribes, and Ruvain's children, Moshe Rabbeinu's aunt and uncle, all of his brothers and sisters, the cousins, and Shimon had these as children. We meet people named Hanoch, Ufalu, Chetzron, Vecharmi. Okay, that's Ruvain's family. Not very exciting. And why now? And Rav Hirsch also points out, probably borrowing from the Rishonim that asked this and Rashi asked this, well, at least... If you're going to tell us the lineage of Moshe Rabbeinu, give us all 12 brothers, all 12 tribes. We just get Reuven, Shimon, and Levi. One can't help but also feel that we already know Moshe Rabbeinu's ancestry. We know his descent. And if the great storyteller decides that we should know it again right now, well then tell us, it would feel like the right thing to do all of the 12 tribes, not just three of them. It really is bothersome when you find it inside. And you'll look right at the very end of this graph, this table of Moshe's ancestry, his heritage. But right after it, the story continues, and you get that epic conclusion. You get all the smiting of the Egyptians, and you see HaKadosh Baruch Hu's epic miracles and those decimating plagues. But not before this chart. Why here? Why now? And in the first edition of the Hirsch Chumash, when it was translated from Old German to... English, by a descendant of Rav Hirsch, Isaac Levy, he gives over the following prime and chief idea in all caps, in caps lock, which definitely speaks to the importance of the idea. And the idea is as follows. 
if the story should end here, not much may be thought of Moshe and Aaron. For the situation for the Jewish people has only gotten worse. And there is no miraculous salvation in sight. But in the forthcoming psukim, we are about to see how Moshe and Aaron were the conduits to carry out some of the greatest miracles that have ever been performed and that will ever be performed. They are about to be the leaders of the highest of high missions. And our verse tells us that that may lead onlookers towards a mistake. For human beings have a way of crowning other human beings, lauding them sometimes too much. We love superstars, we love heroes. And the very beginning of some other mistakes, even other religions, were somebody doing something pretty cool or at least preaching that he did something cool and then the rest of mankind erroneously deifying them, saying, oh, he does have some godlike powers. He is some form of a god, but no. All that is false. There is only one God. So it must be put down crystal clear that Moshe and Aaron are not gods. They are of original human DNA. They are humans. And to prove that, we give over right here, right now, before the story, their family background. We meet Moshe's uncle, uncles, brothers, sisters, aunts, the family that proves, look, they're humans just like us. Moshe and Aaron are not gods so that no mistake should be made. But this is only reason to inspire us all that much more. For HaKadosh Baruch Hu selects certain humans to be the chosen ones. HaKadosh Baruch Hu chose to reveal himself in this way to not anyone else other than Moshe. He chose Moshe as the leader. A man. With uncles and aunts, brothers and sisters. It should be stated very clearly that while Moshe is a man, Hashem only revealed himself or chose to reveal himself to Moshe because of the status that a human being elevated himself to. For the Rambam tells us in his Halachos of Yesaidei HaToyra that that God prophesies to people. God only prophesies to a great Chacham. 
Gibber Bimidosa, he has to be very strong in his Midos. Veloya Yitzra Miskaber, Allah, Badover, Baoilomelahu Miskaber, Bedaitala Yitzra Tumid. He's constantly dominating the Satan. Baldea Rechava, he's got an open and widespread mind. Nechaina, it is very straight. Admaoid. So, but is Moshe Rabbeinu, that is Mimula Bekol Hamidos Ailu, filled perfectly to the brim. With perfect mito, shalom begufo, perfect in his guf, kishiyakonis the pardes, he enters into the vineyards, into the pardes, v'yimshach ba'osan ha'inyonim ha'gedolim ha'rechoikim, and he elevates himself so that this human being, not a god, has become something that is so great that Hashem reveals himself and nevuah, and that is Moshe, the greatest Adam to ever live. I don't want to, God forbid, speak in a way that's confusing to, God forbid, pull away from Moshe's godless. Moshe was the greatest man to ever live. And the fact that he is being shown here to be a man because of this commercial break of showing us this genealogical table, it only brings out his greatness all that much more. And sometimes it can even feel like the lessons of all of the great Avos and Himahos, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, the four mothers. It can feel like their stories are unrelatable and uninspiring because we can't really feel compared to them. Because that's Rachel Menu. She was willing to give it all up to forego her husband, her greatness. But I can't relate and feel inspired to also forego and be mevater in my things because she's different. She's godlike. But when we understand that these people are not gods, they are people. They have a heartbeat. They have human DNA, a torso, legs, they're people. that makes these lessons relatable and galvanizing because it makes one hear about the Akeda and Avram's total subservience and obedience to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that he's willing to give everything up as a human being who loves his only son or the son with everything that he has, but he's still willing to have the level of acting godlike, although they are humans. And this is Moshe, the greatest human. The Spirit of God. It chooses Chachamim, Nevoinim, Gedolim, the leaders. They are not weaklings or simpletons. Only the most suitable Shaluchim are chosen. Indeed, this also answers why the Torah did not continue to elaborate on the different lineage that is of Yisachar and Zavulun and the other tribes. Because while there was the search for the perfect man, there was maybe it's in Ruven, maybe it's in Shimon. The telling of 
They are all regular mortal men. These are Moshe's cousins. But once we find our man and we have found the chosen one, well, then the need to prove Moshe's worth, his godless, while also his human origin has been sufficiently proven. And there's no need to continue. And that's how the genealogical table concludes. It was Moshe and Aaron, people that stood there and spoke before Paro. And now the story continues, the climax, the falling action, and the Egyptian annihilation, all carried out by humans bringing forth the Gevura of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We have learned that through enough godless and striving, one can become like Moshe. Moshe was bashful. He was obedient. He was an un of Mikol Adam. And he was a flesh and blood, a basar vidam, hand-selected, fully ripe, fresh, and ready to carry out the ultimate salvation. This idea from Rav Hirsch allows us to look at the Torah with new eyes and to hear the lessons from the giants, to understand that the fact that these G'daylim and our Avos and Imos, our people, does not detract from their godless, from their greatness, but only doubles it. Because look what they accomplished. With a heartbeat just like you and I. We witness here what levels mankind can achieve. You can have a Kaddish Baruch who reveal himself to you. This little commercial break is what sets the tone going forward. Now it's time for all Gehenim to break loose and the hail will rain and Egypt will be decimated. And the story can continue because there really is nothing like a good story. And now, good defeats evil. It is the protagonist against the antagonist. The tension is calmed. Closure is had. It was all brought about by the chosen one, the greatest man to ever live. Ha ha, did it die, did it die, 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 die,